We'll begin with a word of prayer here. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the witness that you have given to us in the book of Revelation and the way that you have tied all of scripture together. And you have given us assurance, given us comfort that no matter what trials we face, no matter what trials Christians have faced throughout their history, they have been able to, to depend upon you as a faithful witness. We ask that you would help us to see more clearly the great information that you have for us in this book of Revelation. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, our soon coming king. Amen. So tonight we have Revelation part four, Jesus Christ, our triumphant king. When I began studying the book of Revelation, I had no idea that we would go as far as part four. But we will go as far as part four and then we'll even go as far as part five next time. So let's get started. I talked about the use of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, in Revelation part one. And I pointed out that the language of Revelation is heavily dependent on the Old Testament. The most used books are Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They are by no means the only ones, but they are heavily used. And I talked about Hebraic phraseology. 278 of the 404 verses are from the Old Testament. So you may not realize this, but the book of Revelation isn't just a New Testament book. There's a great deal of the Old Testament in this book of Revelation. So first of all, I'll, I'll give you some examples, some, some of the more obvious examples of allusions to Old Testament books. Uh, and then we'll go on to some of the more obscure ones. And these, these are the ones that I really found interesting. But some of the more obvious ones in, in Revelation 1 1, it talks about what might, must take place quickly. And that's hearkening back to Daniel 2.28. He showed what things must take place in the latter days. So John is taking off on that Old Testament verse, presenting this new revelation, this new series of prophecies about the eschaton. In Revelation 119, what is about to, what, what must take place after these things, harkens back once again to Daniel uh, 229, um, Theodosian, uh, you may not be familiar with Theodosian, he's a, he's a Hellenistic Jewish uh, scholar who produced a, a version of, of the uh, Septuagint. And he talks about what things must take place after these things in Daniel 2.29. And in Daniel 2.45, he, he says, what must take place after these things? Uh, I'm not sure what, how that happened. There's a, uh, a marking on my, printing on my screen. I'm not sure how that happened. 
Revelation 22, 6, what must take place quickly. And once again, Daniel 28 in the Septuagint, he showed what things must take place in the latter days. So those are just some more obvious examples of allusions to Old Testament passages. In Revelation 3.14, we read this, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. There is only one other place in the Bible where Amen is a name or attribute of God in Christ. And that would be Isaiah 65, 16. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. The Hebrew actually uses the word Amen to refer to God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God. Amen. So, if the Old Testament refers to God as the Amen, what does that imply if Jesus Christ is referred to as the Amen in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation? Hmm, well, of course, it's just one more indication that Jesus is God. The Faithful and true witness. In 314, I also wanted to point this out. It talks about the beginning of God's creation. And just one verse later um, in Isaiah 65, Isaiah 65, 17, it says, See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come, nor will they come to mind. So once we know what Old Testament passage John is referring to, it becomes clear that the creation uh, he, is, he speaks of is probably not the original creation, but the new creation, new heavens and a new earth. So that, that's helpful because when you, start talk, when you see the, the beginning of God's creation, that's the creation that you're going to think of first is the, the original creation. But once you understand that he's alluding to Isaiah 65, you'll see that the new creation is the creation that it's referring to. So Jesus is the beginning of this new creation. Now, now that we've looked at some of the more obvious examples of, of allusions to Old Testament passages, I wanna spend most of my time this evening taking a look at some of the more obscure passages some of the passages that you might not see as readily. And you will see how John alerts us to the fact that he's going to allude to an Old Testament passage. The Apostle John has many unusual grammatical constructions in Revelation, instances where he doesn't follow the standard rules of Greek grammar. These grammatical irregularities are referred to as solecisms. I guess uh, scholars have a word for everything, don't they? Well, these are, these are called solecisms. Solecisms consist of violations of normal Greek grammar, whether in terms of case, number, gender, or person. I'll explain what case is in just a minute, but the others you're, you're 
probably quite familiar with the number, you know, is it, is it singular, is it plural? Gender, is it masculine, is it feminine? Uh, person, is it first person, I, second person, you, uh, third person, he. So that those are the things that we're talking about here, case, number, gender, or person. And normally in a sentence, you need to be consistent, right? Uh, for example, as far as gender, you wouldn't say, she expressed his opinion. Well, no, she expressed her opinion because if we have a, a uh, feminine personal pronoun, you should use a feminine uh, possessive pronoun, right? And the same, same thing with number. You wouldn't say, they expressed his opinion. No, they expressed their opinion. So you, you need to be consistent within a sentence. And these solicitations occur when there are violations in this normal practice. Now, as far as what case is, um, I'll try to explain this very quickly. The, the Greek language uses a case system for its nouns. We don't do this in English, but I, I understand they do do this in the German language. They have a case system there also. What do we mean by a case system? Well, if a noun is the subject of a sentence, it's in the nominative case. If it's a possessive, it's in the genitive case. If it's an indirect object, it's in the dative case. And if it was a direct object, it's in the accusative case. And we, I took a word that you're prob probably most of you are familiar with, uh, logos, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. And the, the, the word in the beginning was the word and the word is with God and the word was God. And the, the Greek word for word there is logos. Well, in the nominative case, it's logos. But in the genitive case, it's lagu. In the dative case, it's lago. And in the accusative case, it's lagon. So by putting different endings on the noun, you indicate which part of speech it is. And that's why the placement of words in Greek sentences aren't really that important. In English, they are, because if you mix the words around, uh, pretty soon the sentence doesn't make any sense. So you have to follow a particular order. You don't have to do that in Greek because you can tell by the ending of the words uh, what what uh, part of speech they are in the sentence. Uh, just a quick example. In First John, we read in our English translations, God is love. But in Greek, the actual order of the words is God love is. Well, you know, that's kind of hard to understand in English. But in Greek, it's, it's easy to, easier to understand because you have these endings to tell you uh, what, what is the subject and what is the direct object and what is the indirect object and so on. Once again, these things are supposed to agree in a sentence. So if, if something is in the nominative case, uh, when you refer to that thing again, it should be in the nominative case again. If it's in the genitive case, it should be, you know, follow through in the sentence. But John doesn't do that. Why? Why does the Apostle John often not follow the rules of correct Greek grammar? 
secular Bible scholars who don't have a high regard for the inspiration of scripture claim it's because John was an uneducated fisherman who made grammatical mistakes. Now, I realize that uh, secular Bible scholars is, a, is an oxymoron. I mean, why, why study the Bible if you don't believe that the Bible is the word of God? But you'd be surprised at how many people like that there are. So they, they think that John was just ignorant. He was, he, was just a, he was just a simple fisherman who didn't know how Greek grammar worked. Well, even if John started out as an, an educated fisherman, by the time he wrote the book of Revelation, he had been preaching and writing for 60 years or more. So he had plenty of time to acquaint himself with the rules of Greek grammar. We can't write it off by just saying that he was a simpleton. Most of the time, John does follow the rules of Greek grammar. When he departs from those rules, it's intentional for a purpose. Uh, I'll give you a, a modern example. Let's say that you are talking about what people say. Some people say this, and some people say that, and some people say this other thing, but it ain't necessarily so. And then you go on to explain how it really is. Now, you know that the word ain't is not proper English, but you deliberately, intentionally use the word ain't for shock value, to get people's attention, to emphasize what you were going to say. John does a similar thing in the book of Revelation. John uses solacisms to create syntactical dissonance, whereby, for example, there is a lack of agreement in case or gender. This dissonance is one of the ways that John gets the reader's attention, causing them to focus on the phrase and to recognize more readily the presence of an Old Testament illusion. So it's, it's like when John does this, he's saying, hey, everybody, now that I have your attention, I want you to notice that I'm going to allude to an Old Testament passage. This is what John does, and I'll provide you with many examples of that. First one we look at is Revelation 1.4. A genitive construction should follow from, but the one who is, is nominative. So there we have this uh, lack of agreement between the nominative and the genitive. From the one who is. So the one who is, is, is nominative. It, it, it should be, uh, it should follow this from. It should be, not be in the nominative case. It should be in the genitive case. Revelation 1.4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So that once again, the reason that John had inserted this stoicism that didn't seem to make sense was because he's letting us know that he's referring to an Old Testament passage. When he talks about the one who is and who was and who is to come, He's talking about, of course, Exodus 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. So he's the eternally existent one, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Revelation 1.5, the phrase, the faithful witness, the firstborn, is nominative, but should be genitive, following from Jesus Christ. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn. So, from Jesus Christ is genitive. So, the next phrase, the faithful witness, the firstborn, that should also be genitive, but it's not, it's nominative. So, once again, John is tipping us off to the fact that he's referring to an Old Testament passage. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. So he's alluding to a passage in Psalm, Psalm 89, uh, verses 36 and 37, other ones that I've keyed in here. His line shall continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. It shall be established forever, like the moon, an enduring witness in the sky. So when, when John refers to Jesus Christ as the faithful witness, he's alluding to this passage. The phrase Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, is nominative, but it should be genitive directly following in the days. In the days, Antipas, my faithful, my witness, my faithful one. Now, incidentally, you won't see this in English translation. You, you only see this in the Greek, this, the fact that these stoicisms exist. So I'm just, I'm doing this to point these out to you because you won't see it in, in English translations. So I want to point out that there are these solecisms and then tipping us off to, to John alluding to an Old Testament passage and then showing, us, showing you how he does that. Revelation 2.13, I know where, where you are living, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding fast to my name and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan lives. And once again, he's alluding to that passage in, in Psalm 89 about the enduring witness. And Antipas, faithful witness, is identified with that of Jesus. Revelation 12, 7. Michael and his angels, which is in the nominative, serves as the subject of the infinitive, went to war. Normally, the subject of infinitive would be accusative, not nominative. So John, once again, is letting us know he's about to allude to an Old Testament passage. So Michael and his angels went to war. And there are two different cases. One is nominative and one is accusative. And normally, in Greek, that should not be. And war broke out in heaven. This is Revelation 12, 7. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. So this is referring to Daniel's encounter. Uh, in chapter 10, verse 20 of Daniel, uh, then he said, the, the angel that came to, to visit Daniel, do you know why I have, I have come to you? Now I must return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I am through with him, the prince of Greece will come. 
this, this alludes to Daniel's encounter with an angelic visitor. And the idea of necessity is conveyed. Michael and his angels had to make war. They didn't just decide one day to make war, they had to. Revelation 20, verse 2. The phrase, the ancient serpent, is nominative, but should be accusative since it follows the dragon. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent. Revelation 22, 20, verse 2. He sees the dragon, that ancient servant, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This, of course, alludes to the Genesis 3 passage. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, the serpent said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And you're familiar with that whole passage in, in Genesis chapter 3. And John in the book of Revelation is alluding to that by referring to the ancient servant and also by tipping this off that he is going to do that through the use of the soul system. Revelation 4.1, the genitive participle speaking should be accusative in order to agree with the relative pronoun which, which refers back to the voice. The first voice which I heard was as of a trumpet speaking with me saying. So these two which and speaking should agree, but they don't. John is giving us off to the fact that he's about to give us an Old Testament illusion. In addition, the following participle, uh, the following participle after this, after speaking, saying, should be feminine, nominative, in line with voice, but it is masculine. So there are actually two solicitors here. The first voice which I heard was as of a trumpet speaking with me saying, once, in, once again, the, the voice and the saying don't agree in case. Revelation 4 1. After this, I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. This is a reference to Exodus 19. And this is when Moses is about to go up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, as well as a thick cloud on the mountain, and the blast of a trumpet, notice that, a trumpet, so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. As the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses would speak and God would answer him in thunder. The Lord said to him, said to, said to Moses, come up, bringing Aaron with you. So we see both aspects of this illusion incorporated in Revelation 4 verse. The idea of the trumpet and also the idea of come up. 
the masculine participle saying, this is Revelation 11:15, should agree with the preceding feminine loud voices, which is the subject of the participle. Loud voices in heaven saying. So they should agree, but they don't. Sean is letting us know that he's about to give us an Old Testament illusion. Revelation 11, 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. There's a couple of different aspects of this. In Exodus 15, 1, they spoke saying, and this introduces the song of Moses. Part of which, part that says the Lord shall reign forevermore, gets incorporated into John's book of Revelation. So that, that, that part of the song of Moses is alluded to in Revelation 11, 15. Also in Daniel 2, 7, they answered a second time saying, and this introduces that Nebuchadnezzar vision of this metallic image, you know, the, Head of gold and the arms and chest of silver and the belly and thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and feet of partly of iron and partly of mari clay. So this is that the beginning of that. And that's where we get this saying, which is what John incorporates into his book. And then in Daniel 2.44, that same chapter, that, that same story about the image, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It shall stand forever. So that's this idea that God's kingdom will go on forever. John is getting that from the book of Daniel. Saying is not in Revelation 14 verses 6 and 7, saying is nominative but should be accusative in order to harmonize with heaven. Having an eternal gospel to preach to the one sitting on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, saying, saying should agree with having. It should be in the same case, but it's not. Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in mid heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. In Daniel chapter four, we read about where Nebuchadnezzar is getting his come up, comeuppance because he's taken great pride in, in his kingdom of Babylon and God humbles him. And we read in Daniel 4.34, Behold, an angel cried loudly from heaven, saying, Nebuchadnezzar, serve God, give glory to the Most High. So we see many ideas here that John is incorporating into Revelation. The angel crying in a loud voice from heaven, saying, and one of the things that he instructs, 
is give glory to God, give glory to the Most High. Revelation 12, 5. The masculine son is followed by the neuter pronominal adjective male son. Adjectives should be in the same gender as nouns, which they modify. She gave birth to a son, a male son. This is talking about Mary giving birth to Jesus, Mary, who was an Israelite, giving birth to a son, a male son. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all nations, all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. Well, in Isaiah 66, verses 7 and 8, we read this. She traveled, she travailed, she brought forth and gave birth to a male. Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. So when John uses this wording, she gave birth to a son, a male child, he's referring back, alluding back to this passage in Isaiah 66. Revelation 14, 19. The word winepress is feminine, but is followed by an irregular masculine modifier, the great. So we're mixing our genders here, feminine and masculine. The great winepress of the wrath of God. In English, we normally put adjectives before the nouns that they modify. That's not the case in Greek and many other languages. Uh, normally the the noun comes first and then the adjective that modifies it comes after. So in the Greek, the, the great comes after wine press, but I put it before wine press because that is normally what we do in English. Revelation 14, 19. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth and he threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. There are several different places in the Old Testament where we see these concepts. In Joel 3.13, put in the sickle or the harvest, the vintage, is ripe, go in, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. And then in Isaiah 63, verses two and three, I have trodden the winepress and I will tread them in my anger. So this idea that the angel is going to swing the sickle and bring in the harvest, the vintage of the grapes, and that they're going to be thrown into the wine press. And the wine press is a symbol of the wrath of God. Revelation 1, 13 and 15. The accusative son follows like. Normally, should it should be in the dative. But it's in the accusative. Normally it should be in the dative. One like the sun. So again, we're, we're mixing two different cases here, accusative and dative. Also, the genitive word fired should be dative like the word furnace that it follows. 
but alas, it's not. And a furnace fired. So we're, once again, we're mixing our cases, jumping in data. Revelation 1, 13 and 15. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Well, in Daniel 7.13, we read about, as I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And also in Daniel chapter 3, this is from Theodosian's version of the Septuagint again, the word for fire and burning following furnace are in the genitive as in the Revelation passage. Revelation 3.12, the oppositional clause which descends is nominative, but it should be genitive since it modifies the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem which descends out of heaven. So we have a conflict of cases once again. Revelation 3.12, if you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. So a couple of different verses from Isaiah 62.2. The nation shall see your, your vindication and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And I say in 65, 15, you shall leave your name to my chosen to use as a curse. This is talking about the wicked. And the Lord God will put you to death. But to his servants, he will give a different name. So the, the names of the wicked become curse words, but they, the names of his servants will be changed. They will be given a different name, a new name. Revelation 5, 6. The masculine participle having should be neuter in order to conform to the neuter construction, a lamb standing as slain. A lamb standing as slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. Revelation 5, 6. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slain having seven heads, seven horns, excuse me, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. In the book of Daniel, Daniel 7 is where we read about these, these four beasts. The lamb may mimic the beast with horns in Revelation 5, 6. In, in Revelation 5, 6, Ironic parody is expressed by portraying the Messiah in his defeat of the enemy by means of the same imagery of Daniel 7, which is applied to the beast in describing his defeat of the saints. The same way in which the enemy would try to subdue God's people would be used by God to subdue his enemy, even to the extent resembling the enemy's likeness. 
So we, we see that so many times when there's this great reversal where things are one way, but then they're just completely turned on their head. And I said, here, see Psalm 2 also, because Psalm 2 is where the, uh, the nations are making these plans to, to fight against God and to uh, overcome his purposes. And we're told that God laughs. He, he has them in derision. So God likes to do that. He likes to have fun with the enemy and mimic their actions to mock them. Revelation 5.12. The participle saying is masculine, but should be feminine in concord with the gender of voice. In verse 11 or more probably with the gender of myriads and thousands, one way or the other. It should be of the feminine gender, but it's masculine, it's the same. The voice of many angels, and the number of them was myriads and thousands saying. Revelation 5.12, singing with full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So in Daniel chapter seven, verse 10, it's describing the angels in the presence of God. It says a stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood attending him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So we're, we're given this image of a, a very awesome courtroom, thousands and thousands of angels serving God. In this verse, the angelic service to God is contrasted directly with that of the beast in 711, who spoke defiantly in a voice of great words. So in, in 711, we're given a, a, an example of how, how a great voice is used for evil, but in 710, we're given, a, we're shown how a full voice, in a full voice, the angels worship God. So there's a, a contrast between the, the proper use and the, and the wrong use of a full voice. Revelation 7, verses four through eight, the participle seal is nominative, which should be genitive modifying the directly preceding of the ones sealed. The number of the ones sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe. So they should both be generative, but one is generative and one is nominative. Revelation 7, 4, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel. And then it goes on to show us how 12,000 are sealed from each of the 12 tribes. And when we talk about numbering, of course, we are referring back, hearkening back to the numbering of Israel. Numbers 1, 19 and 44, he, Moses, numbered them. And then in 44, Moses and Aaron numbered them. The purpose of numbering for a census in the Old Testament was always for counting up the military force of the nation. Those counted in the Old Testament were males of military age. And so this is significant that 
the 144,000 in Revelation are male virgins. Revelation 7, 9. There are three grammatical incongruities here. First, there is the redundant pronoun, which no one was able to number it. Well, there's two pronouns there. Either one would suffice, which no one was able to number, or no one was able to number it. We don't need which and it. Secondly, the singular every plus singular nation is followed by discordant plural terms for groups of people and all tribes and peoples and tongues, which forces the translator to understand every as a plural. Thirdly, following the nominative participle standing is the accusative clothed, which should also be nominative in line with the case of the preceding participle. So if the participle standing is nominative, clothed should also be nominative, but it's not. It's accusative. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, all from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. And this idea of a great multitude of people from tribe, all tribes and tongues, this harkens back to the promises that were given to Abraham in Genesis. As for me, Genesis 17:4, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. And Genesis 22, 17 through 18, I will indeed bless you, and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven as the sand that is on the seashore. And by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves. Revelation 8, 9. The ones having life is nominative, but it should be in the genitive in agreement with this antecedent of the creatures. The third part of the creatures in the sea, the ones having life. Those two phrases of the creatures and the ones having life should be in agreement, but they're not. Revelation 8, 9. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Well, in Genesis 1, 20, during the, the creation, and God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So it's like God is destroying this fallen world. He's, in a way, he's undoing what he did at the time of creation. He's destroying the living creatures. Revelation 9.14. The accusative masculine saying has its antecedent in the accusative voice. So it should also be accusative. One voice from the four horns of the altar saying. Voice and saying should be in agreement in, as far as case, but they're not. Revelation 9, 14. It said to the sixth angel, 
who had the trumpet. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. This evokes the Old Testament prophecy of a northern army beyond the Euphrates whom God would bring to judge sinful Israel as well as the other ungodly nations around Israel. And we see this time and time again uh, among the Old Testament prophets where they are warning Israel and Judah of a great army coming from the north to exact judgment on Israel or on Judah. The strongest Old Testament echo comes from Jeremiah 46, which portrays the coming judgment on Egypt. The army of horsemen from the north are like servants, innumerable locusts, having breastplates, and being by the river Euphrates. So we've, we've looked at the solacisms of book Revelation, and we see, we have seen that it's not because uh, John was ignorant or uneducated. There was a reason when he used these solacisms, these departures from standard Greek grammar. Now I want to look at some of the parallels, and there are many, between the events of the book of Revelation and the events of the Exodus. The first uh, that I want to point out is an obvious one. It, the Antichrist is sort of the last day's pharaoh. The book of Revelation presents a picture of the leaders of the end times who oppose the people of God. The central figure of such leaders is the Antichrist, the beast from the sea in Revelation 31. His response to God's people is similar to the response Pharaoh to God's people in Egypt. Time after time, Pharaoh refused to yield to the power of God. God through Moses would announce that he was about to send a plague on Egypt. And after the plague had been endured and then Israel, or Egypt was mercifully given some relief from the plague, then God, then Pharaoh's heart would be hardened and he would refuse to let God's people go. He would refuse to acknowledge the power of God. The response of the beast and his followers to the plagues of God is similar. They were scorched by fire, by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Revelation 16, 9. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Revelation 16, 10 through 11. Once again, we look at these seven heads and 10 horns. Seven heads and 10 horns of the beast are reminiscent of the book of Daniel. This uh, beast that we see in the book of Revelation is sort of a composite of these four beasts that we see in Daniel chapter seven. Seven is the number of perfection and 10 of completeness. We are seeing the perfect completeness of evil rule. The 10 horns 
are seven rulers. So if we recall the symbolism, there, there were 10 horns, but three of those 10 horns were displaced. So we have these rulers who are subservient to the beast. The beast is swift like a leopard, strong like a bear, and boasts authority like a lion roars. His power and authority come from the dragon, the devil. So this final end times beast is sort of a composite of the beast that are presented in Daniel 7. The fact that the beast boasts great things, as did ancient pharaohs and other Middle Eastern kings, reminds us of the little horn who so boasts in Daniel 7. The beast blasphemes or speaks in boastful terms concerning his position, while coming against that which is holy or of God. Again, we see the time frame of 42 months, three and a half years, time, times, and have a time, for his dominating rulership, just as Daniel had foretold. Daniel had talked about this time, times, and have a time. Although the devil and those given to him engage the saints in war, both spiritually and physically, all such tasks are under the control of God for our purification. The beast is given authority to make war and to overcome the saints. This does not mean that he destroys the body of believers, but that his persecution leads to martyrdom of many saints and his apparent victory over the saints. This too was foretold by the prophet Daniel. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. This passage in no way contradicts the fact that a great harvest will be gathered in the last days. We saw that in the 144,000 in the innumerable multitude. However, the victory of the people of God, after they have apparently been overcome, will be historically unique. Revelation 13, 7 through 8 tells us that the beast achieves great world domination over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Verse 10 assures us that God's judgment will ultimately prevail. So next I want to talk a little bit about the parallel between the plagues of the Exodus and the trumpets and bowls of Revelation. So there, there isn't a, a parallel in the sequence of events because in Exodus we're dealing with 10 plagues. In the book of Revelation, we're dealing with seven trumpets and seven bowls. So there isn't, isn't a, a clear parallel between the, the sequence of the plagues, but there are many parallels when we look at the individual plagues. The first trumpet, hail, fire, and blood fall on the earth, and one third of which is burned up. In the first bowl, a bowl is poured out on the earth, once again on the earth, Malignant sores come on men who had the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. 
So this first trumpet has a parallel with the seventh Exodus plague. The first bowl has a parallel with the sixth Exodus plague. When the second trumpet is sounded, a blazing mountain falls into the sea. Before with the first trumpet, it was the earth, this time it's the sea with the second trumpet. One third of the sea becomes blood, a third of sea creatures die, and a third of ships are destroyed. That has a parallel with that first Exodus plague, the, the waters carrying blood. The, the second bowl, a bowl is poured on the seas, once again, this becomes blood and everything, living thing in it dies. So with the second trumpet, we saw a third of the sea creatures dying, but now with the second bowl, the second bowl judgment, everything, every living thing in the sea dies. And of course, that is also like the first Exodus by turning waters, waters into blood. With the third trumpet, a blazing star, wormwood, falls on a third of the rivers and fountains, and their waters are poisoned and many die. So first we saw that the sea was affected when the second trumpet sounded, now we see the fresh water being affected. And incidentally, the, the fact that this blazing star is referred to as wormwood. Uh, a few years ago when the uh, Chernobyl nuclear accident happened in Russia. There was quite a stir in the, the world of the prophetic observers because they learned that Chernobyl is the Russian word for wormwood. And so there was all kinds of scrambling trying to figure out how uh, Chernobyl went into Bible prophecy. Well, This is one thing we have to be very cautious about. Uh, trying to get every single event in current events into Bible prophecy. I've seen that Bible prophecy teachers who have television programs do this. I think of one in particular who at the beginning of this program would always go through the headlines, the news headlines for the week. And he always had some way, some tie in how every single one of them had to do with Bible prophecy. Well, that's something that we have to be careful about because not every single current event has a direct tie in to Bible prophecy. That's how people get into trouble with things like setting dates. And we need to be especially careful about trying to apply events, prophecies that refer to the tribulation to current events. There just isn't a direct tie-in. Now we might look at current events and see how things appear to be moving in that direction, but we can't put a direct tie-in between events of the tribulation and current events. So this blazing star, and in the ancient world, every bright object in the sky was referred to as a star. So we recognize that this blazing star would be a, a meteor. 
and that refers once again to that first Antigonus plague that turned the waters into blood. Uh, the third bowl, a bowl is poured on rivers and mountains, fresh waters once again, and they become blood. That harkens back once again to that first Exodus plague. Fourth trumpet, a third of sun, moon, and stars is struck. Darkness results for a third of a night and day. So that darkness harkens back to that ninth Exodus plague. A fourth bowl, a bowl is poured on this sun, which scorches men with fire. That's akin to the seventh Exodus plague. The fifth trumpet, the shaft of the pit is opened. Sun and air are darkened, the smoke from which locusts emerge to torment men without the seal of God. That harkens to the eighth Exodus plague and also to the ninth Exodus plague. Fifth bowl, a bowl is poured out on, on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom is darkened, and men are in anguish. That's parallel to the ninth Exodus plague. In the sixth trumpet, four angels bound at the Euphrates are released with their 200 million cavalry. A third of men is killed by them. A bowl, the, the sixth bowl, a bowl is poured on the Euphrates, on the river Euphrates, which dries up for kings from the east. Demonic frogs deceive kings of the world to assemble at Armageddon. This is parallel to the second Exodus plague. And finally, the seventh trumpet. Loud voices in heaven announce the coming of the kingdom of God and of Christ. Lightning, thunder, earthquake, and hail occur. This is akin to the seventh Exodus plague and also to the Sinai Theophonic description. This is when God comes to Moses, when Moses is brought up to Mount, the summit of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God. There is also lightning and thunder and earthquake on that occasion. The seventh bowl, a bowl is poured into the air and a loud voice from God's throne announces it is done. You think about the crucifixion. When Jesus had completed the work that he is called to do. He said, it is finished. And now, when the eschaton is completed, it is done. Lightning, thunder, and an unprecedented earthquake occur, and terrible hail falls. This is like the ninth Exodus plague, and also like the Sinai theophonic description, which I just went through. Another tie-in with the book of Revelation and the, the story of the Exodus 
has to do with the Old Testament tabernacle. In describing the tabernacle, God said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That was the purpose of the tabernacle in the wilderness. God wanted to dwell with his people. I will dwell among the children of Israel and be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. In the incarnation, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Many English translations will say uh, dwelled or became flesh and dwelled among us. But the word, the Greek word that's used here isn't the, the normal word for dwell. It's a, a very unusual word, a very uh, specialized word that could be rendered the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In the eternal state, in the book of Revelation, we read this. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crime. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That has always been the desire of God, to tabernacle with his people to dwell with him. So that will conclude the, our study for this evening. And then next week, I, I'm hoping that I will just have one more session on Revelation. But I want to look at my favorite aspect of the book of Revelation, the uh, Millennial Kingdom. I'll talk a little bit about at the end about the, uh, the eternal state which follows the millennial kingdom. But the Bible gives us lots of information about the millennial kingdom and not very much about the eternal state. So though I, I will talk about the eternal state, I'll spend most of the time talking about various aspects of this millennial kingdom. So we'll conclude now with word of prayer and then we'll open it up for discussion. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can look to your word. We can depend on your word. And even though the secular scholars like to attack it and to poke holes in it, so to speak, attempt to poke holes in it, they are not successful. When we look more closely, at what you have given to us. We find that it is sure and it is certain and it is dependable and it is reliable. We thank you for that. We thank you for the security, the solidarity that it gives to us. We thank you that 
you provided your church, your people to assemble with, to sharpen one another's character and understanding. We ask that you will be with us and you will use the information that you have given us in the book of Revelation and in all of your word to be strengthened, to be comforted, to have the security and the certainty that you are working with us and that you will complete the good work that you have done. We give you glory and honor in the name of your Son, our soon coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen.